Good afternoon from Northern California. We are ready for another chapter of The Lady in Gold, the extraordinary tale of Gustav Klimt's masterpiece, Portrait of Adele Blockbaugh. Anne-Marie O'Connor is the author. We just finished reading Klimt the Seducer. And we are now on An Innocent Abroad. Like the Bowers, many members of the Jewish elite considered themselves quintessentially Viennese. Freud donned Lederhosen to stroll in the Vienna woods with his daughter Anna. The Bowers celebrated Christmas and Easter as they did the balls of the opera season. In the eyes of Vienna, wit in the eyes of Vienna, wit Alfred Polgar, even the classic Viennese Fulienton, Fouilleton, or short funny sketch, blended the melancholy of the synagogue and the alcoholic mood of Grinzing, the medieval winery district in the Vienna woods. The Viennese Fiakelid, or Coachman's Song, a favorite of the crown prince, was composed by a Hungarian Jewish immigrant. Jewish bon vivant, like Budapest-born Felix Salton, seemed Ubevina, more Viennese, than the Viennese. Yet a wall of social just yet a wall of social prejudice stubbornly defined them as Jews. One of the most unusual Vienna residents to point out the virulence of this tenacious anti Semitism was Samuel Clemens, the American writer known by his pen name, Mark Twain. Twain moved his family to Vienna in September of 1897. He was depressed. The previous year, his family had lost their beloved daughter, Susie, Susie, sorry, <laughs> Susie, daughter Susie to spinal meningitis at 24. Twain desperately needed a change of scene. He was suffering from paralyzing writer's block when he checked in to the Hotel Metropole on the Morzenplatz overlooking the Danube Canal. He brought his God-fearing wife, Olivia, and his daughter, Clara, the belle of the family. Twain was already something of a philosemite. The difference between the brain of the average Christian and that of the average Jew, certainly in Europe, is about the difference between a tadpoles and the archbishops, <clears throat> Twain wrote a few weeks after arriving in Vienna to the Reverend Joseph Twitchell, an old friend. It's a marvelous race, by long odds, the most marvelous the world has ever produced, I suppose. The Vienna Literati invited Twain to address the Concordia Club in October he found himself face to face with the creme de la creme of Jewish society. 
nearly half of the Concordia's, nearly half the Concordia's 348 members were Jews. The audience included nearly every prominent member of Adele Bauer's Jewish milieu, from Gustav Mahler, Alma's future husband, to the handsome and picaresque Felix Salton, a journalist who was writing a sexually explicit fictional memoir of a teenage Vienna prostitute, but would someday be better known as the author of Bambi, the children's classic. Victor Leon was the librettist of the, Mary, of the Merry Widow. The great Vienna newspaper editor, Moritz Steps, Moritz Zeps, found a seat at the August All-Male Club, and his daughter, the pioneer female journalist, Berta Zuckerkandl, likely watched from a special balcony for women. Vienna journalist Julius Bauer, a close friend of Adele's family, who penned a libretto for Johann Strauss the Younger, wrote a picaresque song about Twain's exploits that was sung opera-style by Alexander Girardi, the star of the wildly popular Strauss opera Du Fildemas. Then Twain stood up before these Viennese, sorry, I was back on Flathermas. <laughs> then Twain stood up before these Vienna wits and confided that he had always wanted to de deliver a speech in German, but people thwarted my desire, sometimes violently. Those people have always said to me, Be still, sir. For God's sake, be quiet. Find another way to make yourself tiresome. His listeners were astonished and delighted. Twain spoke and read what he had famously termed, quote, the awful German language, end quote. They learned, they leaned forward to listen as Twain threatened to reform German so that when you need it for prayer, it can be understood up yonder. Among the guests laughing at Twain's send-up was the journalist Theodore Herzl, or Herzl, the, cover, uh, the founder of modern political Zionism and a friend of Twain. They had covered the Dreyfus affair together in Paris, in which a Jewish officer, Alfred Dreyfus, had been unfairly accused by the French of spying for the Germans a case that was a cause celebre of anti-Semitic scapegoating. Twain began his Vienna sojourn by openly defending Dreyfus at the salon of ardent pacifist Bertha von Suttner, who would be the first woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. This prompted the anti-Semitic Reich Post newspaper to sniff at the unavoidable Mark Twain, who seems to have no idea of how he's being mishandled by the Jews in Vienna. Vienna would watch every move of the man the press called our famous guest. The city of 1.7 million had 45 newspapers, a score of cultural journals, and a dozen humor, ma humor magazines. 
Twain's appearances would be covered by Stefan's wag. As Twain socialized with the high society, he puzzled over the anti-Semitism of Vienna. The Jew is not a burden upon the charities of the state, nor of the city. When he is well enough to work, he works. When he is incapacitated, his own people take care of him. Twain wrote a friend in Vienna. His race is entitled to be called the most benevolent of all the races of men. Twain and his family made a highly watched outing at his friend Theodore Herschel's play, The New Ghetto, which predicted that invisible social walls would prevent Jewish assimilation as durably as the old walled ghettos of days past. It could even be said that Twain influenced early psychoanalysis. Sigmund Freud was a regular at lectures of our old friend Mark Twain, though there is no evidence that they ever met. The therapist took notes that would turn up in his jokes and their relation to the unconsciousness. Freud confessed to skipping the lecture of a prince's doctor to see Twain brag about teaching six members of the imperial family watermelon-stealing techniques, an, an anecdote Freud used in Civilization and Its Discontents. Freud would quote Twain in jokes in their relation to the unconsciousness. Sorry, that's not it. Freud would quote Twain in jokes in their relation to the unconscious, the psychopathology of everyday life, and interpretation of dreams. Historians believe Freud was also influenced by Mark Twain's September 1899 Harper's essay, quote, concerning the Jews, end quote, which Twain wrote in Vienna. Why is it, Twain asked, that the Jews have thus ever been and are even now, in these days of intelligence, the butt of baseless, vicious animosities? I dare say that for centuries there have been no more quiet, undisturbing, and well-behaving citizen as a class than that same Jew. Will it come to an end, Twain wrote? Will a Jew be permitted to live honestly, decently, and peaceably like the rest of mankind? Twain delighted his new Viennese friends by becoming mixed up in open ridicule of Vienna's anti-Semitic mayor, Karl Luger, through a mysterious mock letter published in the New Free Press and bearing the signature, Mark Twain. The letter described a heated city meeting on the Jewifying of judges, judgeships, the anti-Semitic term for allowing Jews into the judiciary. Wow. <laughs> I'm reading this going, no wonder Mark Twain is not looked upon fondly um, in today's times. I'll just That's an aside here because of his racism in some of his books. But anyway, let's see. Let's go back to this, the Jewifying. Wow. The letter reported that Mayor Luger recommended tolerance of Jewish judgeships, which made the writer so happy he jumped to his feet and waved his hat in the air, yelling, 
Long live Luger, long live the Jews, until someone punched him, knocking him out cold. According to the letter, he awoke at the Hotel Metropole with, with broken bones and missing teeth. I won't very soon forget the session of your city council, Twain concluded brightly in the letter, which was edited by the newspaper's Foulinton editor, the Zionist Theodore Herzl, Twain's friend. Twain protested he had been the victim of a hoax, but the letter's trademark humor suggested he had been in on the joke. Twain did, in fact, report on government, and he embellished his notes with satire. At one long-winded government meeting, Twain wrote in his notebook that a tallow chandler had wandered in and accused Vienna's leading anti-Semites, Luger and Schoenera, of having Jewish great-grandmothers, plunging the chamber, chamber into an uproar. Invented a new name tonight for Schoener's party, the Louse Boys Party, Twain scribbled to himself. Twain's daughter Clara was studying piano with the young Russian-Jewish composer Osip Kabrilowicz. <laughs> slaughtering all these names, sorry, whose seductive manner and kisses were so beguile Adele Bauer's friend, Alma, that she found herself falling in love with him, though she said a friend told her he was ugly as a Russian Jew after a pogrom. Ossip began an attentive courtship of Clara that made it clear Twain would gain a Jewish son-in-law. Twain and his family of innocent wild Americans rubbed shoulders with everyone from Johann Strauss to Emperor Franz Joseph. But anti-Semites focused their suspicions on, many, on his many social ties to, to Jews. Old Testament names like Samuel were customarily Jewish in Vienna, and anti-Semites began insisting Mark Twain was an attempt by Clemens to disguise his Jewish roots. The anti-Semitic press began to taunt him as the Jew Mark Twain. One cartoon showed Twain surrounded by greedy Jewish merchants caricatured as hook-nosed Shylocks. Twain was unfazed. His depression had lifted. He was writing a play with the Vienna playwright Sigmund, Sigmund Schleisinger <laughs> and the two men joked about a role for Katharina Schratt. Like the rest of Vienna, Twain was quoting Fledermaus. Happy, happy he who forgets what cannot be changed. At his desk, overlooking the Danube Canal, Twain finally began to write again. His news story, The Mysterious Stranger, was reminiscent of the Goldfoss tale beloved by the Viennese, of a man's deal with the devil. It was past midnight, Twain wrote, when down on the Morzenplatz, he saw a tall, handsome stranger dressed in black. With a rush of wind, a crash of thunder, and a glare of lightning, the Prince of Darkness appeared. He had an intellectual face and the subtle air of distinction which goes with ancient blood and high lineage. Vienna is my favorite city, Satan told Twain. 
I was its patron saint in the early times. I still have much influence here and am greatly respected. In less than two years, Twain had become intimately acquainted with, the Vienna, with Vienna's most virulent demon. When Twain moved his closely watched spectacle from Austria in the fall of 1899, Adele had chosen her wedding date. Vienna, too, was at a threshold. In November of 1899, Freud published The Interpretation of Dreams, his anatomy of the unconscious impulses driving individuals and society. It took six weeks for the first review to appear, a snide dismissal that epitomized the isolation suffered by emerging modernists who tried to express ideas that did not conform to hostile convention. On the brink of the 20th century, Vienna was, in the words of one new writer, Karl Kraus, an isolation cell in which one was allowed to scream. But this isolation of genius was ending. The salons of the emerging second society, run by the small coterie of Jewish intellectual women, would open a forum for new ideas and art. In the process, the woman sorry, in the process, the women who hosted them would gain influence they could never have aspired to in Vienna's hostile tradition-bound institutions. Adele was one step closer to joining this world on December 19, 1899, when she emerged a bride from Vienna's Grand Stop Temple and stepped carefully onto the cobblestones of Seatenstettengoss. And that, my friends, are the words today from that chapter called An Innocent Abroad. Next time you'll hear from a chapter called I want to get out. Thanks for listening.